Hello, everyone. This is Devin Thorpe with uh, the Forbes Social Entrepreneur. It's, a, it's great to be with you this morning. We have a very, very exciting group uh, to talk about a, a most important uh, issue today. The, the SEC uh, late yesterday issued new rules regarding crowdfunding. Uh, these rules are... Um, really earth-shaking rules. It's, it represents the implementation of the most sweeping changes in securities laws in 80 years and I've uh, really been fortunate to pull together an, an extremely impressive group of experts. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Bill Clark with us, Doug Elinoff, uh, Julian Hellman and Ryan Fight. Thank you all uh, for being here with me this morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, listen, uh, there's a lot to cover. If I looked at it right, uh, there are somewhere between uh, 550 and 800 pages of new regulations that were issued 12 hours ago. So I, I trust that you've all read and memorized all of those pages and look forward to your insights. Uh, but Doug, you're a securities lawyer with Elinoff, Grossman and Scholl. Tell us a little bit quick overview of, of what we got from the SEC last night. Uh, notwithstanding a lot of public commentary that suggested that there were powers at play that might undermine the crowdfunding movement and that we would never reach the day that we had yesterday, we're in a 5-0 to zero vote by all of the commissioners unanimously in support of publishing the proposed rules. Uh, we now have the extensive reading that we need to do, uh, but it is clear that the agency, along with FINRA, who will end up regulating the funding portal community, has embraced the movement, and we now will have a new industry uh, after the commenting period of these proposed rules, which may last many months, but at the end of the day, we will have a viable crowdfunding industry in the United States of America. That, that is wonderful. Bill, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you expect the timeline to be on this. When it, These are draft rules. Uh, there's a 90-day comment period. Are we live after 90 days? Is that, when, is that the starting gun 90 days from now? No, you know, I, I, um, I don't think that in 90 days it's going to be live. I think that there's going to be, after the comment period, there will be uh, more consideration from the SEC, and then they'll, they may have a, a period of time um, where they're, um, I guess, getting it, getting all the funding portals uh, approved before it's live. There may be some broker-dealers that can do it beforehand, but I think we have to wait on the, the new FINRA uh, rules that, are, that should be coming out in the next several days to see when that timeline, what the timeline will be for that. Right, right. And then, Doug, presumably we'll have a, uh, uh, the SEC will issue revised rules, maybe additional comment period. What, what do you, how long do you think this process will really run? You said many months. Uh, I think the real number, just to build on Bill's theme, I think there's another 60-day period that gets tacked on to that after the actually approved rules by the commissioner at that then future date, uh, there's going to be a period of time after that like there was for Title II once they're officially published in the Federal Registry. 
it'll be another 60-day period. So I, I think you're looking at a minimum of 150 days. And just to clarify, uh, Bill, it may be interesting to you, FINRA actually published their proposed rules last night. So it's all, the, the good news is you have interagency coordination in an endeavor where they're working together, SEC and FINRA, to now, are you saying that, Doug, because you know it or because you just assumed that FINRA didn't write its rules between 5 and 7 p.m. last night? Uh, <laughs> uh, I know it. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I, I would actually take the over on that. I would say you're looking at a 90-day comment period. Um, you then have, probably have 30 days for them to summarize the findings and set up a vote. And then I think you have another 60 days for it to actually hit the register, which takes you out to a minimum of 180 days, which takes you to April 23rd. And if the last few years were any lesson for any of us in the industry, it's going to be longer than that. So I think 180 days would be fantastic. Realistically, 9 to 12 months would be my bet. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the, the depressing reality, isn't it, Ryan? Thank you. I appreciate your joining us this morning, Ryan. Uh, uh, Jillian, one of the interesting questions that there was a rumor, and I haven't had a chance to go through the rules to figure this out. I'm hoping you can answer the question. I'll put you on the spot. But the 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 rumor was that the that platforms like yours would not be required under the rules to determine. Uh, a non-accredited investor's eligibility based on the investments they'd made in their income. I guess it was the investments they'd made, right? Uh, in perhaps on other platforms, because there's an annual limit. And uh, the law anticipated the Jobs Act itself had anticipated that platforms like yours would be required to determine eligibility on that basis. The the rules were rumored not to have that requirement. Did you check that last night as you were reading through the draft rules? So I, I have to admit I have not read all 600 pages, though I'm grateful that it is shorter than the health care bill. So my, my weekend won't be as painful. But I, I have not read that directly in the rules, though I heard this, a similar rumor. And frankly, that would be a very, very challenging thing for a crowdfunding portal or a broker-dealer to do unless there was some central repository. And if there were a central repository, I would imagine that we would all have to foot the bill for that. I don't know who would run that or manage that. I don't know that the SEC and FINRA want to run that as a separate business, so that they're probably trying to get themselves out of that business. Uh, but I, I heard the same rumor that we will not be required to monitor our investors' activity across other platforms that we cannot control. But, of course, we will be required to monitor the activity and their investments within our own companies. Does anyone else have anything to add on that point before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I think that's generally right. The rules basically have um, put the burden on the investor so that it is self-certification. Um, and I think this is something that they got it right. If you put the burden on the platforms instead of individuals themselves to police it, it would be overly onerous for starters. And secondly, there'd be a lot of privacy concerns and risks with uh, having a lot of portals sending private private information uh, over the internet back and forth. So I, I think this is something that they got right. But I can tell you that uh, Title II proponents are kind of scratching their heads right now because all of a sudden the uh, the burden is higher on accredited investors than it is on potentially non-accredited investors. So it creates an interesting dynamic that I think we should all look, kind of pay attention to. I, I guess uh, a 
a, an accredited investor could simply opt to represent himself as a non-accredited investor if he didn't want to uh, invest too much. Well, well, they yeah, actually, you know, you don't have to say you're non-accredited, but an accredited investor could basically invest up to a hundred grand through Title Three with self-certification and avoid 506C uh, accreditation verification. So it's an interesting kind of storyline from our standpoint. And, and that, you know, people may think of that as not being very much money, but in fact, the, in the angel community in Utah, uh, most of the angels I know were not investing $100,000 a year, even though they may have been accredited investors. Uh, you know, they might do two or three deals a year, 25 grand a pop was kind of the, the typical level in Utah. It's probably greater on the coasts where most of you live, but... Uh, uh, and in you know Silicon Valley, I imagine there are a lot of people who are investing bigger. But yeah, and just sorry, one, one more one more Go thing ahead. to tack onto that is that uh, you can participate in Title Two and Title Three separately. So just because you're investing up to a hundred thousand uh, dollars as part of Title Three doesn't mean you still don't have an unlimited amount that you can invest uh, in normal five hundred six offerings. So just something to keep yeah. in mind as well. Great, great insight, Ryan. Let's. Uh, you've all had a chance to open those documents. You've all uh, skimmed them, I'm sure. What is the What is the big news you are discovering as you, as you look at it? Each one of you, Doug. Do you want to take a crack? What What was the news you found in the in the draft? And I was encouraged as I went through the document that while there are issues that maybe can't be reconciled as Ryan's pointing out or other issues where <clears throat> on behalf of the industry we advocated for this staff to take a different position. There are many other examples where I think the staff came up with very reasoned approaches that will benefit the industry long term and while in totality the, the document is hardly regulatory light touch, which I think we are all hoping for. Uh, in the aggregate, it isn't about winning all the battles. It's about getting started with the best negotiated result you can. And we do have an opportunity to respond and comment. And I actually thought there was a lot of right-mindedness in the document and that the staff did listen to the industry concerns of people like that on your panel. And we have a document now that's a starting point, and I think it's exceptionally encouraging. That's great. Now, uh, what about you, Bill? What's your take? Any, any news, yeah. any surprises in this document? You know, I would, I would agree with Doug. I know that we've been waiting for a long time to see these rules, and uh, with a 585-page document that is, you know, obviously it, it took the SEC and uh, Infinera even, I'm, I'm sure that they collaborated a little bit to to draft this. And and I think that it's, it's great to see that while it has taken a long time that they have really thought through the rules and they've done their homework. And when you read through it and just skimming through it like I did last night, you can see that there's a lot of different sections that they're they may not have the final rule and they're asking for a lot of comments and feedback. And then the other takeaway is it, it looks a lot like what, um, you know, if, if you're already a broker dealer and you are raising money and you're doing a Reg D 506 offering, there's a good chance that you're doing most of the things that they've already proposed. So uh, I don't think that there's too many things that are 
uh, that were unexpected in the document. Interesting. Jillian, uh, what, what's your take? Uh, any surprises in this document? So I think it was pretty much in line with our expectations. I mean, two things that, that you know, one you've already mentioned, which is around, you know, how do we solve for compensation? They were, they were largely quiet on compensation, though we're seeing, you know, you're going to be seeing if those things are going to be changing in the FINRA rules. There's one other thing that I was hoping for some clarity on, and, and in my cursory overview of the documents last night, I still don't have clarity on, which is simultaneous accredited offerings or Reg D506, either B or C offerings and crowdfunding offerings. Um, we're, we do crowdfunding for real estate, and in our vertical, you know, we might be working on, on big projects, a $16 million project or a $30 million project that needs a lot more capital than a half a million or a million dollar cap that were in the law. So I'm interested in seeing if there's going to be simultaneous offerings I, that are allowed. I have, good, I have some good news for you. It's uh, yeah, exactly. they they permitted simultaneous Reg D and crowdfunding offerings, so no Fantastic. integration issues. So that was Fantastic. a good one. That is what that's they, really a surprise, isn't it? Yeah, that is what a big they didn't do, and uh, which we were hoping for. And Ryan's spot on. It, it does the document does speak specifically to accommodating for multiple uh, exemption exempt offerings going on uh, simultaneously. But what it didn't do, which I had hoped for, just to show that there is disappointment in here as well, is that I had hoped that they would limit a the million dollars to just unaccredited investors. But to the extent accredited investors wanted to invest in addition to that million dollars of unaccredited capital coming into a Title III campaign, that they would permit that. Uh, on the theory that the definition of investor is vague in the Title III and it was really congressional uh, thought to just protect non-accredited investors, but they didn't do that. They, yeah. they saved a million dollars from all investors, so that's a disappointment. Agreed. Interesting take. So, uh, Ryan, I don't know that I got your surprise yet. Did you find any surprises, any news in the document as you were reading it? Yeah, so I think the you know, aside from investor self-certification and um, integration issues, which we talked about, one positive surprise I think the commission got right was giving, providing flexibility to issuers on the offering amount. So there was some concern with the way Title III was written that if a company set out to raise $250,000, they'd have to either raise $250,000 or zero, but they provided the ability for a company to say, my target amount is $250,000, but... I would raise up to $750,000 if they're over subscription. So that's the way the real world works, and I think that's something they got right. So we were happy to see that. A couple things that we're not surprised by, but we're, we still think need some work, is uh, one, the prohibition on investment advice, which based on a meeting we had with the commission back in July, I think there's some flexibility there during the comment period, but we have work to do. And I still think the idea of companies, especially startups with no revenue, that are raising between $500,000 to a million dollars, having to, to uh, file audited financial statements is, is uh, pretty frivolous. And, I, and I'm not surprised it's in there, but I think, it's, uh, I, I think it's, it needs some work as well. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about other things that you would comment on if you, when you write your, your comment letter to the SEC. Give me some ideas of things you'll include in that. Jillian, what, what might you include in your comment letter to the SEC? So, again, we're focused in real estate, and there's a couple things in real estate specifically. One, you know, a half a million dollars or up to a million dollars with audited financials is very, very challenging. 
Um, we are a little bit of a different offering than a startup. So we're distributing current cash flow and current income back to our investors on a monthly or quarterly basis, you know, assuming our investments go well and there's always risk. So to, to spend, you know, ten to twenty thousand dollars to do audited financials on that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense in our book. I mean there's gonna be a lot of transactions and a lot of money and capital moving hands because we do monthly or quarterly distributions. So those audited financials aren't like a startup where there's not a whole lot of transactions. There's real transactions. Um, and that's a big concern of mine. I mean, I think that the, the big one for us is audited financials. Um, and I, I think that it's going to make crowdfunding really challenging in real estate if that sticks. There is, you know, some additional thoughts around an exemption for real estate specifically that we're closely following. Uh, but save that, you know, audited financials are a big, big issue in our book. Well, I want to just follow up on that. The, the It shouldn't be a surprise that the rules require audited financials because the law requires audited financials. How does the SEC change the rules when the law requires audited financials? Just look at uh, Title II as an example. The, the Title II rules never said anything about 15-day pre-filing of Reg D for companies or a lot of the kind of new rules that they stuffed in there, so it can vary um, quite a bit. Actually, the statute does say it gives the SEC authority in the uh, in Title Three to change to the amount, change the amount if they had chosen yeah, to, which they right. were never truthfully inclined in all of our meetings to consider. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, and and one other thing too, you know, I looked through the the draft rules last night, and I actually don't know that I saw the line item on the cooling off period. Did anyone else see that? They basically said that during the 21 days, if that's what you're referring to, yeah. um, that a you can't close an offering within 21 days, but you can actually accept uh, investment commitments during that period. So our read of it is that uh, a company could start and file their materials with the SEC and with a platform and start actually uh, and have it live fundraising, collecting commitments during that time period. You just can't close it within 21 days. So Devin, that, just to go back to sort of surprises, that's a, a, a fantastic surprise for us. Yeah. You know, in real estate, a lot of times our guys we're working with are closing off cash, they're moving quickly, and to tack on an extra 21 days would be a very, very bad thing. So, you know, that was something I was intently planning on commenting on that it sounds like I may not need to now. Oh, good, good. Doug, what was the big surprise, what, what is the first thing that will be in your comment letter? I think that both uh, the, the comments that have been made before are the primary areas we focused. I think curation continues to be a big issue. I think funding platforms ought to be able to cherry pick which deals they think are appropriate for their site without having to be a broker dealer. I don't think that's inherently investment advice. I think investment advice only starts once the deals are posted to the site, even though I understand what the concern was. Uh, the other thing that I would encourage people to actually read the rules, a lot of it isn't all that technical. It is a lot about reviewing the comments that have already been submitted to the SEC. And it's very interesting narrative from a lot of different people. And then in there they have 290 comments that they're asking the SEC, the SEC is asking uh, the audience to comment upon. Uh, so there's still time to have your voice heard, even though I think the views that are already described by the staff as being the proposed rules are very considered opinions at this point. So I don't think there's probably a whole lot of movement. But the point that Jillian, me, uh, uh, Jillian made is spot on. 
is that there's a lot of good news. The staff listens very closely over the last year to the comment of the industry in order to propose rules that are actually quite reasonable even though they could still be improved upon. Yeah. Great. Now, Bill, what, what would you put in your letter? So, so I might be in a little bit of a unique situation as a broker-dealer that's been uh, doing crowdfunding for the last three years. I've had three audits, two with FINRA and one with the SEC. Uh, so a lot of what I see in the rules, are they've already kind of addressed a lot of our comments and they've actually looked at our model when they were going through the process. And so most of it I'm pretty happy with. I think that there's a couple of things that I'd like to, um, I guess, give my comments on. One involves uh, escrow and just who can be an escrow agent. I noticed that they, they asked uh, for comments around that where currently you have to use a bank and they're looking to see if there's any other uh, um, agents that could potentially do that. And then other other um, items are just maybe a, 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 a split between a broker-dealer and a funding portal on investment advice. We don't currently give too much investment advice right now. We, everything that we put on our site is curated, and so we feel like it's a good opportunity, but it's not necessarily for everyone. So we just want to provide as much information as we possibly can. But since we do have licenses and uh, as from what I've read, I'm not clear if a funding portal will have to have securities, uh, you know, specific uh, licenses like a Series Seven. Um, there should be a little bit of leeway there. So I think those are those are a couple of the, the yeah. interesting uh, points. Just Doug, do you want to add Kevin? something? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the there's very little chance that an escrow agent isn't a bank because right. that's what required a broker dealers under 15C24, Bill, which you know. And I think from day one, the meetings that Ryan and I were at, the SEC made it very clear that's a very sensitive spot. And even the Title II platforms that are not even subject to these rules have been pushed in that direction. And the other thing that was interesting, and it was a series of conversations that we sat through towards the end of our meetings with the SEC, was there uh, questions about whether or not crowdfunding platforms would have to use transfer agents and the rules don't require it currently but that to the extent that we're actually going to create public market companies out of these whether it's title two or title three funded opportunities uh, funding platforms are going to have to consider that possibility yeah and they certainly asked for comments on that on transfer agents uh, I think Commissioner Stein actually specifically mentioned as one of our three areas where she has questions so so Ryan, what would be in your comment letter? We've got well, about one minute yeah. left. So I have, I have three things. One, uh, we talked about already, which is investment advice. I'm going to be very focused on that. Two, which is uh, audited financial requirement. And then third thing that nobody's spoken about and is still a big gray area to me, and I think people will start talking about it, is that is liability. So they didn't provide a lot of color or meat in the proposed rules on um, exactly what addressing liability concerns and as of now the burden of proof is on the issuer uh, to provide statements that are not material misleading and intermediaries have some liability in conjunction with that and uh, I think it's an area that needs more uh, more clarification from the SEC in order to provide clarity to issuers that um, you know something is not going to blow up in a few years 
And to put a finer point on that, Devin, what Ryan's getting at, which I, uh, it, the way the statute was constructed, all of those obligations, the 10b-5 sort of liability for misstatements and omissions, is in the issuer section. Right. It doesn't, and it talks about those involved in the offer and sale of securities. It doesn't specifically reference a funding platform, and I think that that failure to mention a funding platform specifically is why a funding platform, unlike a broker-dealer like Bill, should have reduced liability exposure. Now, this may be wishful thinking on one securities mm -hmm. lawyer's part, uh, but the statute is very clear what the obligations of a funding platform are to do background checks and to require certain other express things. But I think it's a stretch to suggest, which it may turn out to be, that a funding platform ought to be liable for the 10b-5-like liabilities that you would see in a public setting. And so I think Ryan's spot on that there needs to be greater clarity in that particular area. And I think it's wrong-minded to assume that a funding platform should have broker-dealer obligations without the benefits of being a broker-dealer. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, it has been a real pleasure to have all of you. And I don't know about you, but I could keep talking about this for another three hours, and then I would just need a break, and I want to come back for more. So, but uh, we do have to end. I thank you very much for your time and energy today. Thanks a lot, Thanks Devin. Well. Appreciate nice. it. All righty, let's do some thank good. You. This is Devin Thorpe. Thank you for joining me today for this podcast, which was recorded during a live broadcast of this interview via Google Hangouts on Air. A video recording of the interview is available at youtube.com slash devinthorpe. You can learn more about the work of the Your Mark on the World Center at yourmarkontheworld.com.